Africa rise and shine Africa zora Africa amka na unai Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Asanda Matsaonyane, Tracy Bumgard and Msibudi Makura. In our top stories in Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, UN Secretary-General calls for Burkina Faso security forces to show restraint following a coup. Kenya marks the second anniversary of the Westgate Mall shooting and cites calls for increased anti-poaching efforts across the illegal rhino horn value chain. In economics news, South Africa's inflation data due to be released tomorrow. And in sports news, its all systems go for the CAF Under-23 soccer tournament. But first up, the news with Asanda Mazzalnyane. Good morning. Five people have been killed when a car bomb exploded close to the presidential palace in Somalia's capital, Mogadishu. According to police, no immediate claim of responsibility from the Islamist militant group Al-Shabaab has been made. Al-Shabaab is trying to overthrow President Hassan Sheikh Mohammed's Western-backed government. The group has stepped up attacks this month, retaking a town in the central region and attacking African Union troops. Several people have been wounded as supporters of rival political factions clashed in northern Guinea. As tension mounts in the race to elect a new president, activists backing opposition leader Selou Dalain Diallo and supporters of President Alpha Conde threw stones at each other in the town of Kwandara. This is the first violence of the campaign. Public and private property has also been ransacked. Police say they have made 15 arrests, although the opposition estimates the figure at 30. The widow of slain former Lesotho's army commander Maparangwe Mahao is expected to take the stand in public at the Sadek Commission of Inquiry investigating her husband's death. The commission's chairperson, Judge Mpapi, on Tuesday... Judge Mpapi Mpumapi announced when closing on Monday that Mpapanya Mahau will testify on Tuesday. Her testimony is expected to attract a lot of attention in Lesotho. Ntakwanangatane reports. Mampanya Mahau was considered brave by Lesotho norms when she stood to speak at her husband's funeral. She has attended some of the public hearings of the Sada Commission, but it is her public evidence that many are waiting eagerly for this afternoon. Senior officials from the ruling ZANU-PF party have reportedly indicated that Zimbabwe's President Robert Mugabe might be forced to quit before his current tenure ends in 2018. This comes as the 91-year-old continues to make blunders, which the opposition says is a sign the veteran leader is too old to continue leading Zimbabwe. Those close to him, according to a local newspaper, however, claim he is as fit as a fiddle and that he will be fit to contest the 2018 elections when he will be 94. Vice President Emerson Mnangangwa is widely tipped to be Mugabe's successor. 
To mark World Rhino Day, the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora cities is calling for increased anti-poaching efforts. Despite global efforts to combat rhino poaching, the world continues to see an escalating number of poaching incidents. South Africa, with the world's largest rhino population, has had over 750 rhino poached this year. Ben Janssen van Rensburg is from cities in Switzerland. Our tagline is do the right thing. We can see people like to do the right thing. They want to do the right thing. But often there's not a practical and easy way to do the right thing. So what we've done is we have partnered up with the WWF Rhino Fund to give normal, ordinary South Africans a practical way to be able to help save the rhino. So what we've done is we've launched a six-pack yogurt. I branded with the Fekad logo and with the WWF Rhino Fund logo. And we are donating the net profits of each pack, which is approximately 50 cents a pack, to the WWF. For Channel Africa News, I'm Asanda Mazzaunyani. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Asanda. It is 8.05 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. With reports emerging of a potential civil war in Burkina Faso following a coup last week, the UN Secretary-General has reiterated his call for the country's security forces to show restraint. Military units of the armed forces are marching on the capital, Wagudugu, to disarm an elite presidential guard responsible for Thursday's coup. While regional mediators are expected to meet for an extraordinary summit of ECOWAS in Nigeria tomorrow, the UN is calling for a swift resumption of the country's transitional process. Sean Bryce Peace reports. With simmering tensions on the streets of Burkina Faso, several military chiefs in the country have called on the elite presidential guard to lay down their arms. Their statement says all the national armed forces are converging on Ouagadougou with the sole aim of disarming the presidential guard without any bloodshed. At the UN, unease and calls for restraint through the Secretary-General spokesperson Stefan Dujeric. The Secretary-General continues to follow with great concern the situation in Burkina and strongly condemns reports of violence against civilians, which has resulted in unconfirmed number of deaths and injuries. Uh, he firmly reiterates his call on the Burkina B's defense and security forces, especially the Régiment de Sécurité Présidentielle, otherwise known as the Presidential Guard, to exercise restraint and ensure respect for the human rights and security of all Burkina B citizens. Ban Ki-moon's Special Representative Mohamed Ibn Chambas is in the region to help safeguard the country's transitional process that would have seen elections on October the 11th. Chambas will also participate in the extraordinary ECOWAS summit in the Nigerian capital Abuja on Tuesday after mediators secured a draft deal at the weekend that proposes a postponement in the polls, reinstates transitional president Michel Kafando and grants the coup leaders amnesty. Special representative for West Africa, Mohamed Chambas, continues to coordinate with ECOWAS, uh, the African Union and other international partners to support and safeguard the transition in Burkina, and in fact, Mr. Chambas is currently in Abuja, ahead of the ECOWAS Extraordinary Summit.
It remains unclear if all stakeholders have accepted the draft peace proposal, as the Secretary General warns national stakeholders to refrain from violence. Stefan Dujeric again. He's following the, the closely the ongoing regional mediation effort uh, towards the resolution of this uh, crisis. In relation to that, I know he spoke to uh, the president of uh, Senegal over the weekend. He also, Secretary General, also reiterates his demand for the swift resumption of the country's political transition in accordance with Burkina Faso's constitutional transitional charter. Those responsible for the coup d'état and its consequences must be held to account. Scores have taken to the streets in protest against the military coup, erecting barricades and burning tires in opposition to the rebellion. Several people have been killed and dozens injured in events since Thursday, while shops, banks and petrol stations remain closed. I'm Sherman Bricebees in New York. Nepal has adopted its new constitution after years of bickering, but the step to transform the former Hindu kingdom into a democratic republic sparked fresh violence. The circular charter aims to unite the population in the poor nation that has seen a palace massacre, war and recently a giant earthquake that killed 9,000 people. Ranasen reports. Police shot and injured three protesters on Monday, dashing hopes the historic move would halt weeks of violence that has left 40 people dead. Nepalese analyst Yuvraj Kimre argued the protests were on because people believed the constitution was thrust on the largely Hindu nation. Whether Nepal should be a secular or uh, continue to remain a Hindu country was not the agenda, but the way it happened, and some members say that in the agenda that was circulated among the members in the house, this issue was not there. This is an issue which merited much larger debate and participation and involvement of the people. But Indian diplomat Shiv Shankar Mukherjee disagreed, labeling the constitution as a progressive step and also rejected allegations the secular identity had been slipped into the democratic charter through conspiracy. I do not agree that this business about making Nepal a secular state rather than a Hindu Rashtra was slipped into the constitution without the constituent assembly or those people responsible for the interim constitution not really uh, being given a chance to comment about it. After the announcement was made, Nepal just shrugged its shoulders and carried on. There were no huge demonstrations and so on and so forth. The constitution creates seven states in a federal system, offers religious and cultural freedoms. But South Asian analyst Prashant Jha argued the paper was only a slogan in the former Hindu kingdom. Secularism in Nepal doesn't go far enough because even in the definition of secularism that has been uh, passed, it says protection of ancient religion, which I think reveals Hindu tilt to the Nepali state, which it should not have. The press president should not be going to religious functions. What if we have a Muslim president tomorrow? Others, such as India's former ambassador in Kathmandu, Rakesh Sood, believed the move was a ploy to salvage lost credibility of Nepal's political class, blamed for doing almost nothing during the giant April earthquake. I think there are two factors that were behind this uh, coming together. One was that after the earthquake, the Nepal government was seen to be somewhat at sixes and sevens in not being able to discharge its responsibility. And the second was that this brought a certain amount of discredit 
to the political leadership that over the last seven years they had been unable to come to an agreement on some of the contentious issues. An international donors conference next June to help rebuild Nepal is also seen as the tipping point for the government to stamp the constitution in an attempt to regain the faith of the global community that has promised billions of dollars in disaster relief. This is Rana Sen reporting from New Delhi. Kenyans are marking the second anniversary of the bloody Westgate Mall terrorist attack that killed at least 67 people and left hundreds wounded. Security has been beefed up in the capital Nairobi, Mombasa and other major towns. Somali's Al-Shabaab militants claim responsibility for the Westgate attack, terming it retribution for Kenya's military incursion into Somalia. Mwaki Koyo reports from Nairobi. Kenya is marking the second anniversary of the bloody Westgate Mall terror attack that killed at least 67 people, leaving others with serious injuries. And to mark the tragic four-day siege at the Westgate Mall, victims and business community have organized a march in Nairobi to condemn the deadly attack. The mall has once again reopened, although the entrance looks like a garrison with several armed police officers in uniform stationed at all entries and exits. And although much has changed since the terror attacks two years ago, the spirit of courage and resilience rises to the skies. Most of the victims and business owners have returned to their jobs despite the trauma and fear of similar attacks. Most of the businessmen who lost their property during the four-day siege are optimistic of stabilizing and resuming the operations. We will stabilize. We are hoping to stabilize and we are hoping to come back to our feet fully. The whole Westgate went down, so we lost the whole sales which the flagship branch was doing. In terms of opening, what we are going to offset almost half a billion shillings, 500 million Kenya shillings, to make do with what we are able to do in phase one. And despite the horror they witnessed, most of the workers and shoppers at the mall are more than willing to report back for duty. Interfaith prayers has been held at the site as the memorial plaque with the names of the victim was unveiled. And once again, the mall has been crowded as ever before. We are back, I know that the apprehensions, but as a country, we are safer than ever. Remember, that is where we used to work. And uh, when it was brought down, uh, it's like uh, our food on the table was also brought down. So we are very happy. The kids were a bit scared that uh, do you think those things can repeat again? Then we said no, let's go on and see because uh, whatever was happened was past. But now we are really happy to see it's very good. I'm super impressed by Kenyans who cannot be shaken by such things as terrorism that they've come in numbers and the place is beautiful. I like the facilities and I really liked it. But you know, before the incident, I, w- I wanted to see what happened after it. So I had fun ending it. It was a bit scary, but I just wanted to see how they did. However, security has been enhanced in all public places in Nairobi, Mumbai and northeastern Kenya in order to preempt possible terror attacks. Public places such as churches, malls, supermarkets and other social places are in constant surveillance. Last week, a dozen suspects were arrested including seizure of deadly weapons such as AK-47 rifles and rocket-propelled grenades. Police have also foiled dozens of terror attacks in Nairobi, Mombasa and northeastern Kenya. Four Somalis are being held in Kenyan prisons on terrorism charges linked to the Westgate Mora attack. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi.
across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach, reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe. This is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Ntakwanangatani in Mohalizuk, Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.16 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Policymakers and artists from different walks of life yesterday gathered in the Rwandan capital Kigali to celebrate World International Peace Day. Though some countries in the region are still engulfed by endless conflicts, peace is possible, as Selevanas Karamera reports. In conjunction with the Peace One Day... An international organization for peace advocacy and the Rwandan government, as well as other stakeholders, the day was made colorful. Artists of different sorts from across Africa for the first time struck at the audience at the National Stadium in Kigali with the International Peace Anthem. Most of the spectators were youth that have been perceived as the main partners in retaining peace in their respective countries. Today is the International Peace Day, but again, draws attention, uh, a close attention to me. I ask myself first, though it's the International Peace Today, does the world have peace today? The youth, now if I come back to the youth, we as youth, are we comfortable where we are? Are we, are we safe? Are we, are we having shoes on our feet? Are we not starving? Those today is the interna- International Peace Day. In Rwanda, we know our country has been destroyed by youth. So, as youth nowadays, uh, as we know what happened in 1994, what uh, youth did, and we know the, how, how it caused the destruction of this country, we are the one to build our, our country. And you cannot build the country without peace. Peace is the main foundation of each and every activity. Youth have widely been seen as tools for every country's negative or positive fates. Albert Nzamukwereka, a co-founder of Never Again Rwanda, a human rights organization in Rwanda, says the youth are central in driving forward their country's agenda. Youth in Rwanda under 35 years are more than 65%. So we believe that if they are empowered, they can sustain this peace we are talking about going forward because they will lead this country and take over from the current generation and they want the future generation to enjoy peace in this country. How do you go about the lamentations, for example, that they are not equipped and they, you know, take full uh, involvement the whole process? This is what we are doing now. We have seen we have over 200 youth now 
they represent other youth from all over the country. So we believe that this is just a first step. We will continue empowering them across the country. The Great Lakes region of Africa is perhaps still an epicenter of conflicts which have made peace a broad daylight dream to be achieved. But Jeremy Gire, founder of Peace One Day, the international organization and co-host of these celebrations, remains confident peace is attainable in reference to what is happening in Rwanda today. I think peace is absolutely achievable. I mean, we're in the country of Rwanda. The courage, the passion, the growth that this country has gone through in the last 21 years, and which is being celebrated, in fact, on the 21st of September, if that isn't a sign that great achievements can be made, I don't know what is. But I go back to what we, the real point here is that the real conference, the real war that humanity faces is in every country of the world. In 1994, Rwanda was brought down by genocide. But today, the tiny country in the heart of the Great Lakes region is widely seen as a beacon of hope due to its thriving peace and security and economic growth. Silvanus Karimera, reporting for Channel Africa in Kigali. South Africa's growing use of antibiotics could lead to increased resistance against life-saving treatments. This is one of the many findings of a new global report which shows a decline in effectiveness on the once powerful and life-saving drugs. The State of the World's Antibiotics 2015 report was put together by researchers from the U.S.-based Center for Disease Dynamics, Economics and Policy, CDDEP. While the issue of antibiotic overuse both in medicine and food production and the subsequent treatment threats to human health has been featured in a number of recent news articles, medical experts say this latest report is crucial. Dr. Kim Foray is the coordinator for CDEP in South Africa. You know, it's the first time that South African data is presented in a month international data. So it's significant because we can start looking at how do we compare to the developed world as well as to our colleagues in the low and middle income countries. We can see which parts of our antibiotic usage and where our resistance is different to theirs. Doctor, what according to this report is the current state of antibiotic use in South Africa? Yeah, so the report shows that similar to the rest of the low-income countries, we're using a lot of antibiotics. In fact, South Africa has got the highest increase between 2000 and 2010 of antibiotic use. And the significance of that is that the more we use antibiotics, the more likely we are to develop antibiotic resistance in our organism. And that for us can have drastic effects. We could end up with infections that we cannot treat with the antibiotics we have available in the market. Perhaps if you could just break it down for us in layman's terms, how exactly does the overuse of antibiotics fuel our modern plagues? So what happens with antibiotics is if we use an antibiotic and you don't use it correctly, the organisms that are in your bloodstream, they become resistant. And what happens is, is those organisms then have the potential to either continue to make you sick or you as an individual can spread that organism that's now resistant to an antibiotic to somebody else. And so what happens is we can spread resistant organisms throughout the community by one person using antibiotics incorrectly. We've seen drug resistance in diseases like malaria and tuberculosis. What other diseases are proving difficult to treat with antibiotics? So there's three diseases that that we've been tracking. The one is urinary tract infections with E. coli, 
which is something that normally happens in the community. So patients going to the GP and being treated for a urinary tract infection, those infections are becoming more and more resistant to our common antibiotics. The other one is MRSA, which everybody knows is a, what they call a superbug. And it's normally due to skin infections, and it can be severe, serious infections for the elderly. And that's becoming resistant to antibiotics as well. And then Klebsiella pneumonia, which is a quite a topical disease because of its nature in the public sector as well as in ICUs across the country. And that is a very severe infection that patients generally get in hospital. And it's also becoming more and more resistant to the antibiotics that are commonly used. In fact, so much so that we're starting to use those last resort antibiotics. And that's when things become really, really dangerous. Now, the report paints a dismaying picture of antibiotic use and resistance rising in South Africa. Do you think that the country has focused enough attention and policy in this area? We're actually very lucky in South Africa. We've got a very proactive Ministry of Health in terms of the DG has a passion for antimicrobial stewardship. And through the partnership with the Centre for Disease Dynamics, Economics and Policy, who the people that I work for, and with the clinicians in the society called the South African Antimicrobial Stewardship Program, we've been able to develop a strategy for the country which will help address our situation in terms of antimicrobial resistance and also help us with putting in place plans that are going to prevent resistance from getting any worse. Talking about putting plans in place, Doctor, what are some of the things that the country could perhaps look into to combat future resistance of antibiotics? So this national strategy contains a number of pillars. One of the big important pillars is infection prevention control, so preventing the spread of infections in our healthcare facilities, but also good sanitation and vaccination in our communities, which will prevent prevent the spread of infection. The other thing is actually practicing good antibiotic prescribing habits, both by the physicians and the clinicians in the private sector, as well as in the hospitals as well as the GPs that we come into contact with. And the third pillar is looking at making sure that the public is aware of the dangers of inappropriately using antibiotics. That was Dr. Kim Forrest, South Africa's coordinator for the Center for Disease Dynamics, Economics and Policy, speaking to Elizabeth Lidicha. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.26 Central African Dam and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. On this World Rhino Day, the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora sites is calling for increased anti-poaching efforts across the illegal rhino horn value chain, especially in consumer states. This as an ever-escalating number of poaching incidents, South Africa, with the world's largest rhino population, has had over 750 rhino poached for their horn this year. Sintla Inglihihi reports. 
Africa's rich natural endowment is under threat and the ever-increasing rate of rhino poaching is a clear indication that many of our natural wonders will one day be gone. Rhino poaching numbers began surging in 2008 with 83 rhino killed. They have now rose to record levels. Ben Janssen van Rensburg from the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora, CITES, says more countries need to work together to collectively participate in global law enforcement operations specifically to address illegal trade in wildlife. It's very difficult for any single country or organization to combat wildlife crime alone. I think what we do need is definitely increased efforts across the entire illegal trade chain. This means increased efforts in range, transit and destination states. We are more and more seeing countries working together and I think that's the key because we are dealing with with crimes that spread across national borders. The Department of Environmental Affairs says while there's been an increase in poaching over the last year, there's also been a significant increase in terms of arrests with over 1,617 positively identified poaching activities inside the Kruger National Park. Departmental spokesperson Elbi Mudise says the country has also undertaken various memoranda with international counterparts to tackle this borderless crime. We realize the fact that poachers do not respect political boundaries and some of them have been coming in from the Mozambican side. So we've been working closely with the Mozambicans to ensure that we find the system of disrupting them from the other side, but also to ensure that when we are chasing the poachers and they move into the Mozambican side, our law enforcement agencies are able to engage with the Mozambican to, to, to assist the South African and law enforcement agencies to arrest those individuals. South Africa has also agreed to translocate some rhino to provide a safe haven for them, while Sun Parks has begun translocating 150 rhino from the Kruger National Park to private owners. Translocation as a whole seems to be moving very slowly. Botswana's Minister of Environment, Wildlife and Tourism, Tikeri Kama, says measures have been put in place to safely accommodate these giants. We've recently just relocated 40 black rhino into the country and that represents 1% of the population of black rhinos. Uh, We have also got a rhino squad now which we've just built. Government has given us additional funding for anti-poaching purposes. And we've now trained, we're training up hundreds of people into this role so that we can look after the rhinos because there's no point having rhinos from one country and then you lose them in another. While various mechanisms such as dehorning and horn poisoning have been put in place, experts say their success is limited as they do not deter poachers and in fact, leave the rhino vulnerable. Wildlife surgeon at the University of Pretoria, Dr. Johan Mareis, says while many measures have been implemented, it is difficult to accept that this type of brutal exploitation has continued. We've treated several rhino now, females especially, where they've removed about half of the face. And you get to this rhino and it's one huge bloody mess. South Africa is home to an estimated 20,000 rhino, about 80% of the world's population. Sinke Inglihihi in Mahigeng. It's 8.31 and our headlines up next with Asanda Matsaunyane.
Good morning. United Nations Secretary General reiterates his call for the Burkina Faso's security forces to show restraint. Five people are killed when a car bomb explodes close to the presidential palace in Somalia's capital, Mogadishu. And the eight South African former policemen found guilty of murdering Mozambican taxi driver Mido Masia are to be sentenced today. For Channel Africa News, I'm Asanda Matsaunyani. Thank you, Asanda. Zimbabwe has admitted that it is battling with the foot and mouth disease that has affected mainly cattle in the country. Foot and mouth is the most contagious disease known to cattle and is a transboundary animal disease caused by a virus and affects all cloven animals. The disease was clinically detected in August this year in Zimbabwe, a country known as an exporter of meat. Simon Muchema reports from Harare. Zimbabwe is admitted is battling with foot and mouth disease in the southern parts of the country. The disease was detected mid-August this year, but the country failed to keep its prey to other areas. During the Arare Agricultural Show in August, foot and mouth disease was topical despite exhibition of some cattle in Harare. Veterinary experts tried to put a brave face and pretended the disease was yet an outbreak just to please the authorities. However, following concerns by neighboring South Africa over the outbreak, Zimbabwe has begun admitting foot and mouth is indeed an outbreak. Foot and mouth disease is known to be highly contagious and a disease known to be mainly affecting cattle due to transboundary infections. Deputy Minister of Agriculture, responsible for livestock, Paddington Janda, admitted over the weekend. Well, foot and mouth is there, and we have always lived with the foot and mouth. It depends where it is occurred in terms of the outbreak. And um, the current outbreak, obviously, we are uh, battling with it because we of uh, the need to get more vaccines. But and in particular, the challenge this time is obviously cattle move for a longer distance in search of water and, uh, and pastures. And therefore, it, it becomes a, a bit of a problem. But we, 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 it's under control. We have a outbreaks there and there, but it's under control. Each time the country is affected, buffer zones are established in affected animals' quarantine. Animals are tested, treated, while least restricted from free movements. However, government says the outbreak has been worsened due to the longer distances animals are moving in search of pastures and water, Janda explained. We've always had foot and mouth. Mm-hmm. Foot and mouth does exist in Zimbabwe, whatever happens. But what we need to do with the, these sporadic outbreaks. But foot and mouth, that's why the country was divided into red zones and green zones. Because we know in areas near conservancies, where obviously uh, wildlife and the cattle interact, there's a possibility of an outbreak of foot and mouth. And regularly, we are supposed to be vaccinating in those areas. But because, as I said, because at this time in, of, the, of, of the year, where cattle are moving longer distances in search of water and grazing, there is duty bound to be a, a, a close contact between a wildlife and, what, and cattle, resulting in outbreaks. Currently, over 450,000 doses of vaccine 
have been procured and delivered to different parts of the country where there is active foot and mouth disease infection. Out of these, 70,000 doses have been dispatched to parts of Matabeleland South Province bordering South Africa in Botswana and vaccination in the area is presently going on. A total of 120,000 animals in the southern border area of Zimbabwe are expected to be vaccinated at least twice by end of September to bring current outbreaks in the area under control. But we have heard the FAO, our cooperating partners, we've assisted us and we've stood by us, including government as well. So we have got vaccines at the moment that we are dealing with all uh, outbreaks. And we're also wanting to say, why should, why should owners of cattle, commercial owners of cattle, want their cattle to be vaccinated by government? Government, we don't own cattle. And why should we have the private people who say, Everything, when the house is on fire, they fold their arms and say government must do out the fire. When the house is not on fire, government don't come in, it's my house is secure. We can't have that. We want stakeholders, we participate. And in that I am driving a situation where we must establish a stakeholders, a fund to deal with emergencies of this Government nature. dispelled the claims there is poor surveillance in Zimbabwe resulting in the foot and mouth disease outbreak. Well, surveillance is there. We have, uh, government is provided. We are one of the best well-resourced um, uh, department in terms of veterinary services, qualified people, uh, well-resourced. And whenever there is an outbreak that is okay, we move in as quickly as possible to vaccinate cattle in the affected area or cattle in the affected area and also create buffer zones. We have done, but sometimes in fact, sometimes the cause of uh, this is through the legal movement of what? Of Keto. And it's not government which legally moves Keto. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Fair trade tourism is set to beef up certification criteria for volunteerism. Nivashni Naidu, Fair Trade Tourism Managing Director, says her organization played a pioneering role by developing certification criteria for volunteerism, focusing on the involvement of local communities and the fair share of benefits. She spoke to Channel Africa's Wandile Kalipa. Volunteerism is really one of the fastest growing travel sectors in the industry at the moment. It's really about bringing people from different parts of the world to volunteer their services in South Africa, predominantly related to two areas of upliftment. They work in communities to try and develop into communities, as well as in the environmental and nature conservation space. Now, talking about fair trade tourism said to beef up certification criteria for volunteerism sector, was the problem there? I think maybe just to start off with, as you may know, fair trade tourism, our core focus is responsible and sustainable tourism. And we need to ensure that any kind of project or work that is done in our communities or in the conservation sphere is done responsibly, and it leads to sustainable development and sustainability. What we find is that there are some volunteer programs that exist that is actually working to the detriment of, you know, host communities and the environment because there's no clear focus in terms of leaving behind a legacy. So, for example, you know, you may have some programs that bring in volunteers to work with the rehabilitation of animals. But in actual fact, the rehabilitation program is rehabilitating animals to send them back into the wild and, you know, used for hunting purposes and that kind of thing. 
So our advocacy and our part in raising awareness about volunteerism is to ensure that any kind of volunteer program is done responsibly. You know, you get a heightened sense of achievement out of it, not just doing it for the sake of having a project on the ground. So why is it said that this volunteerism is associated with a boom in unregistered orphanages? Look, I can't comment on that. All I can comment on the fact is that we need to, as fair trade and tourism, create a comfortable, compliant, focused area where when volunteer projects come in, they abide and they adhere to criteria that is leading to responsible and sustainable tourism in the country. You know, when you think about it, to your question of orphanages, we need to ensure that volunteer programs that is focused on communities is using it responsibly to uplift the community. And, and, and if they're using, you know, if they're working with orphanages and children from there, it's to develop them and teach them, tutor them, rather than just using them for a short space of doing something illegally. Fair Trade Tourism played a pioneering role by developing certification criteria for volunteerism, focusing on the involvement of local communities. What has been the successes and the challenges? Well, we've had a few businesses that have shown an interest in becoming certified, and we certainly think that the niche is growing. And hence, we have actually we in the process of revising our criteria to make it more specific. We're doing this in consultation and discussions with a number of NGOs that are specifically and primarily in the volunteerism space. So what we are in the process of doing, as you may have read, is we are not amending, we're adding to and upgrading our certification criteria for that sector to ensure that the criteria specifically talks to the protection of the volunteers and simultaneously that any program that is run It also serves to protect the children, the wildlife, the communities, and adds to sustainability at the end of the day. So we kind of fine-tuning it to be more specific in terms of the protection of these programs and people involved. What are the challenges faced by this volunteerism? I think it's a lack of awareness. It's a lack of awareness of what volunteerism needs to be doing. You know, people are using the volunteer programs as a uh, stepping stone for other businesses. Volunteerism is about uplifting a community and and, and uplifting um, the conservation and environmental sector. And I think it's fair, the challenge is that lack of awareness and we need to be involved in making people aware of the sustainable nature of these programs. What is expected with regards to the release of revised certification criteria? We're hoping that most of volunteering businesses and operations go for and become certified against the criteria. So, you know, the services and the operations need to be underpinned by this criteria so that they may know that any program that they are bringing through or, or running or operating is compliant and it's working along and adhering to the proper criteria and requirements of the country as a whole. And, you know, it's due diligence. Any volunteer organization that measures themselves against our criteria and is certified by us will be satisfied that they are adhering to due diligence and they are they different, they're differentiated essentially from the, the players in the industry that are not practicing volunteer programs in the way that it's supposed to be. And that was Nivashni Pillay, Fairtrade Tourism Managing Director, speaking to Wandile Kalipa.
across the globe. Every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting edge and hard hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe. This is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.45 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Our economics update up next with Tracy Bumgard. Thank you, Lulu. Gambia's economy faces serious risks from a worsening budget, rising inflation and tight interest rates. In an annual review of the West African country's economy, the International Monetary Fund warns that policy inconsistencies undermine the country's ability to meet external obligations. In April, the IMF lent Gambia $10.8 million. Gambia's economy contracted in 2014 as the Ebola epidemic hurt tourism and a drought curbed agricultural output. The current account deficit has increased and external debt is on the rise, while official reserves have dwindled. South Korea says it will investigate emissions of the three VW and Audi diesel cars after Volkswagen admitted rigging emissions tests on diesel-powered vehicles in the United States. The probe will involve 45,000 cars covering VW Jetta and Golf models and sister company Audi's A3 produced in 2014 and 2015. 
The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency said last week that VW used software that deceived regulators measuring toxic emissions and could face penalties of up to $18 billion. VW CEO Martin Winterkorn has promised to support testing by German authorities of the, cars, of the company's diesel cars. Germany's transport minister has ordered an independent testing of diesel car models. The South African Reserve Bank will announce on Wednesday if interest rates will be going up. The Monetary Policy Committee started its three-day meeting on Monday. Most analysts are predicting no change. The MPC has a lot to consider following the U.S. Federal Reserve's decision to keep rate hikes on hold. The Reserve Bank has already increased interest rates by 25 basis points in the face of a contracting gross domestic product. Security economist Colin Garrow predicts the bank is likely to pause in its tightening mode. The U.S. Federal Reserve now deciding not to hike the interest rates or rather to delay the hiking of uh, the, uh, their target rate, uh, that differential, for now anyway, um, supports the carry trade currencies, supports commodities, and of course supports the rand. It gives it somewhat of a breathing space. And it has been um, to do with the volatility in the rand exchange rate. That was the concern that uh, the currency was overly volatile and it could prompt the Reserve Bank to hike uh, its policy rate. But of course now things are looking steadier, they are more stable, but I must say it very quickly for now. Inflation data is also due to be released on Wednesday. It's expected that inflation will edge up slightly from July's 5%. Garrow says the impact of the weak rand is still working its way through, but food inflation may unsettle consumers. Food and uh, petrol are the two biggest components in the uh, consumer price inflation basket. Uh, right now, food prices are moving, moving up. Um, it's unfortunate that the lower you are on the income ladder, uh, the fewer food substitutes you've got. Uh, a bag of maize meal, for example, is going to cost more. So you really can't substitute with anything else. Um, and that really is due to the exchange rate. We don't, we don't think about the impact the exchange rate has got on maize, etc. Kenya's central bank plans to mop up 95 million U.S. dollars from the money markets and excess liquidity. Kenya's shilling lost ground on Monday. Analysts believe the shilling will trade in a tight range ahead of the central bank's monetary policy committee meeting on Tuesday. The central bank is expected to keep its main interest rate at 11.5%. Taking a look at the financial indicators, the U.S. dollar is trading at 13.37 South African Rand, at 10.20 Botswana Pula and at 10.02 Zambian Kwacha. It is also trading at 0.64 to the British pound and at 0.88 to the euro. In the commodities market, gold is trading at $1,133 and platinum at $966 an ounce. Finally, the price of Brent crude oil is at $48.57 a barrel. Thank you, Tracy. Our sports update up next with Msibudi Makura.
Thank you, Lulu. Good morning, sports fans. Springbok flyer half Pat Lambie has admitted the team is still hurting after Saturday's shock defeat to Japan and need to get back onto the field as soon as possible. The grim mood in the camp has persisted but is slowly being replaced by the desire from the team to put matters right, although the six-hour trip up from Brighton to Birmingham by bus has been described as the quietest Springbok bus has ever been by some of the members of the team. With the players sitting down to review the game on Monday, Lambie says the team needs to get back on the field and start repairing the damage done to the Bok reputation against Samoa this coming Saturday. Yeah, I definitely am, I'm hopeful. I guess we don't really have a choice now. Um, but you're 100% right. Uh, certainly since I've been involved with the Springboks, it's brought the best out in the group when we've had our backs against the wall. Um, and like has been said already, so all our focus is completely on Saturday against Samoa. And we really want to make things right. Meanwhile, utility back Jesse Creel shares Lambie's sentiments. Obviously, we were very disappointed with the, with the result and how we played. And uh, But I think the, the great thing about rugby is we've got another opportunity this weekend to go and make it right. So I think that's where everyone is at. And um, obviously, we're going we're gonna to review the game and um, go forward from there. On to football news. The Avoyan Football Federation has announced the team set to face Morocco in a friendly match on the 9th of October. The match will be played in Agida and will be played four days after the Elephants. The reigning African champions arrive in the Moroccan resort for a training camp. Back home, the South African Premier Soccer League and Telcom officially launched the 10th edition of the Telcom Knockout in Johannesburg on Monday. The tournament will kick off on the 30th of September, with the rest of the first round matches played on the 3rd and the 4th of October. PSL Chief Executive Officer Brandon Villiers says together with the sponsors Telcom, they would like to make this edition special as last year's. The PSL is in the business of... of you know, playing matches and providing soccer, you know, for the people to, to watch and, and the teams to play. And so the cup competitions is unique in that sense that it's usually knockout competitions, you know, it's finals every week, you know, and this competition, the Dolphin Cup, is essentially 15 finals uh, that produce lots of content, you know, content that gets broadcast on television and both television stations, uh, you know, it's in the media constantly. So it provides huge sort of benefits to the uh, sponsors, uh, to the league, obviously it provides a platform, generates income, you know, and it sustains the league. And finally, in Wilche Tennis, New South Africa's top singles women's player, Khotato Manjani, as well as the men's top singles player, Evans Maripa, have moved on to Italy, where they will compete at the Sardinia Open, also an ITF Level 1 event at Agaro getting underway today. The two just didn't make it at the Toyota Open in France, where they were knocked out of the knocked out in the semi-final and the quarter-finals, respectively. Wilche Tennis, South Africa's general manager, Karen Losh, has the details. So we, we hope to see them in equal performance during next week in Italy, or this week in Italy. Well, those are your sports news at the hour. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
Recapping our top stories in Africa, Raz and Shan at this hour. UN Secretary General calls for Burkina Faso security forces to show restraint following a coup. Kenya marks the second anniversary of the Westgate Mall shooting and cites calls for increased anti-poaching efforts across the illegal rhino horn value chain. That wraps up Africa Raz and Shan today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Luanda Maume, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or send an SMS on 79. 79- Six nine five seven nine three zero. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Chimsoro by Malay. Yeah.